Hey, Darren, what if we spent this entire podcast just saying Hodor over and over again? Just Hodor's all the way down. Hodor! Exactly, with an, like an occasional summer thrown in there. Uh, I'm James Hibbard, editor-at-large, AEW, and a few states across from me is senior writer Darren Franich, and we're talking Game of Thrones Season 6, Episode 5, The Door. We're going to talk about Hodor, we're going to talk about what happened to Summer, uh, we're talk direwolf name fan theory, and what does it mean that Game of Thrones in its sixth season has suddenly become a time travel show? Uh, all that and more. Okay, so let's start. Uh, I need to gush about that terrific, heartbreaking final sequence. We have this weird triple heart punch of we learn Hodor, where his name comes from. First of all, this is this big, huge chunk of his backstory finally explained. We learn that Bran is actually responsible for Hodor's condition all this time. We learn that Hodor dies, which is horrible in itself, and a very, you know, he dies in a very heroic and and awful way. And we learn that Bran was responsible for that, too. It's sort of like all Bran's fault, and yet Bran is also the person that Hodor cared about the most. And uh, unintentional, uh, but still, uh, you know, in a large way, his responsibility. What was your reaction to this, uh, the ending, uh, Darren? Well, you know, James, to me, this is an example of how uh, when Game of Thrones wants to, it can just do great, you know, old fashioned like filmmaking. The great thing about this, that final sequence was it was accomplished by just like old fashioned cross cutting. You know, you had like this really thrilling sequence happening in the present day. And then, you, you know, the whole time there was also Bran in the flashback. And it was kind of like, you know, when you're watching an episode and you're very aware that like there's four minutes left, there's three minutes left, you know, something big is going to happen. So every time it would cut back to Bran kind of looking at young Hodor. You were waiting to see what was going to happen, and I was kind of like, you know, is Hodor going to get, like, hit in the head by something? Like, what is the Hodor origin story? The surprise here is we all had our expectations about what Bran was going to see in the past. I don't think any of us realized there was going to be a Hodor origin story. And then, you know, when all of a sudden these two streams fused all at the same time with Hold the Door and Hodor and everything, I mean, that was just, you know, so thrilling, so unexpected. Full credit to the actor. I mean, uh, the, the guy who played Hodor, who has done so much with literally very, very little over the years, I mean, that has to be a, like a, a top three death scene in the Game of Thrones history, right? Well, yeah, I mean, and TV history, has any actor ever spent five seasons, because he, he, he was out for one season, on a TV show with only one word of dialogue? It's, it's really incredible that he's managed to do all these different nuanced versions of Hodor over and over again over the years. You know this about me. I love the space-time continuum, and, and I'm also tormented by it. Like, I'm the guy who, whenever there's a new Terminator movie, I always kind of, like, pull out my gigantic, like, you know, Carrie Matheson wall to try and figure out how everything all fits together. Um, Game of Thrones, as you said, it is a time travel show now. In, in, in this interesting way where, you know, we sort of thought Bran was just sort of seeing visions from the past. Now it's clear that, like, what he was doing was, you know, more than that. It's more than just, you know, young Ned Stark, like, hearing hearing a voice on the wind. There was an actual sort of moment that happened there that I found so interesting. I mean, you know, what does that mean for the show? And I mean, you know, frankly, what does that mean for Bran now? <laughs> I suspect, and this isn't coming from any insider knowledge or anything, but I, I wonder if this is like one of those things... Sort of like with Jon Snow coming back to life. It's a big card to play, and I suspect 
that the showrunners will probably be like, we're only going to play this once, you know, that, that this is like one of those things that if you're going to do it, you know, we'll just do it once and then close that door, so to speak, moving forward. So, so that doesn't ha- happen again and not like keep it as a regular thing in the arsenal moving forward. But, you know, I also could be totally wrong on that. You know, it, you know, what's interesting is that this uh, episode was directed by Jack Bender. It's the first Game of Thrones episode that he's done. And uh, of course he was like the go-to director on Lost and that, that ending moment, um, you know, in which uh, going back and forth uh, in time between those two, two scenes and the music and the, 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 the emotion, it reminded me of some of those best moments on Lost when you'd have these sort of emotional climactic codas at, 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 the, uh, at, at the end of episodes. Sort of invoke that feeling in a good way. You're so right. Like It, it was like the moment at the end of The Constant, like the, the famous uh, Desmond episode, um, where like you, you have two levels of action happening, one in the present, one in the past, and somehow, like I mean, because of the nature of that episode, like the same character is present in, in both of them. And so, yeah, which actually I'm looking this up. Jack Bender also directed that episode. So kudos to you, James. That is definitely an incredible use of Jack Bender's very unique and very specific talents for creating beautiful codas centered around uh, time hopping uh, sequences. I got to say, like, uh, that was the first time in a while that I think Game of Thrones really brought people to tears. Right. I mean, you know, the show is always intense on an emotional level, but it, it, it rarely does something like that that just, you know, leaves you just so completely emotionally wrecked. I want to ask, too, I mean, there was a time when this show would have one, like, big special effects episode per season, you know, like like the Blackwater or, uh, the, you know, one, one big kind of battle sequence. And, you know, you, you kind of got used to that rhythm. So when we got to the end of this episode and all of a sudden it was like, oh, my God, like, there's the White Walkers. There's the Whites. Like, you know, we're doing a full Minds of Moria, like, you know, underground chase sequence with things exploding and everything. I mean, what a, A, what what a thrilling scene. And to go from that to just feeling so, you know, all the feels for Hodor, that was just an awesome way to to wrap up episode five. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, this this season has been pretty... um terrific i think from the outset it's it's been very emotional Kill, not that killing off characters is necessarily good or bad but i mean we we've had those moments in every single episode so far name actors uh, have perished uh, every single episode so far far not name actors sorry name characters have, have perished in every single episode so far which is unusual i think it's racking up a higher body count by episode 5 than than uh, most if not all of the other seasons have uh, up until this point, I want to go back to Hodor for a moment. Uh, the show obviously is taking its a bit of its own narrative path now that uh, the novels have finished. But this thing in particular was George R. R. Martin's idea. This was something that George R. R. Martin told the writers about the origin of Hodor's name uh, during their big summit meeting in Santa Fe a couple of years ago. And the showrunners just thought it was a fantastic idea. I will say it, it was funny, James, because um, when it became clear that like, you know, the White Walkers were going to come in and, uh, you know, that uh, the Night's King could come into the uh, great Deku tree for reasons that, uh, you know, are kind of left up to magic. I was kind of thinking, like, I guess that, like, Bran and them are all going to leave, but uh, surely brilliant actor, screen icon, Max von Sydow, like, 
like, he's gonna get out somehow. He'll he'll disappear into the tree or something like that. Nope. <laughs> no, Max, yeah. Max von Sydow spent three episodes this season sort of like walking around with Bran and sitting inside of a tree, and that was it. <laughs> At the same time, it's sort of like you look in terms of what his dialogue was, and it's pretty brief and simple, and I think that's an effective use in some ways of a really strong actor is to have them able to sort of deliver these simple lines in ways that seem profound and authoritative. And so he was able to bring that. Of course, you know, not only only, uh, did uh, The Raven die, um, uh, also Leaf uh, Parish as well. So, uh, you know, and we found out that, that the white walkers are basically a walking like bioweapon that the children of the forest created to fight the uh, first men, uh, that they created the, the Night's King, uh, as, as part of, a, a defense, you know, a, a, a golem, a, a Frankenstein's monster, uh, to go after them. And then this force spiraled out of control. I'm still very unclear on what the Three-Eyed Raven was and what sort of purpose he served. Like, you know, there there were moments when it really seemed as if he was a kind of, you know, Yoda figure for Bran. And, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he, he, he really made that text at the end of, of the episode when he said, like, you know, when he said, you have to be me now. And I, I mean this in a good way because I kind of like the mystery. My response to that was, who are you? <laughs> well, and also the question is, is how much did the Three-Eyed Raven know we assume from what we saw that he he was trying to prevent the very outcome that happened. But then again, with all his knowledge of time and space, you know, did he know this was going to happen all along? You know, when he, when he tells Bran, you should listen to your friend um, and sort of nudges him to take that next step. Uh, does he know that this is going to be his ultimate fate? That that sort of, you know, messes with your brain even more. It's like, wait, how many layers are there? Before we leave uh, Hodor and Bran and that crew, we have to talk about Summer. We lost another damn direwolf tonight, which fans are quite upset about on the heels of losing Shaggy Dog. What was was your reaction to Summer being killed off? My reaction, James, was a big fat, who cares? Seriously, guys, who cares about the direwolves? There's there's one cool direwolf. Its name is Ghost. Ghost couldn't break out of one measly cage to save his master from being killed. I mean, I appreciate the fact that I'm sure for the producers of the show, killing the direwolves is just kind of like a lovely thing because they no longer need to animate them anymore. But for me, I mean, I I am kind of like, I'm having some fun here, but it's also kind of like, you know, the problem with the direwolves is past a certain point, they only really exist on the show as a kind of, like, deus ex machina, like, just when you think that Bran slash John slash some other Stark sibling can't possibly get out of something, then the wolf appears and gets them out of it. So I'm, I'm pretty okay with the fact that I, I think we're now down to just Ghost and, uh, and long-lost Nymeria, right? Am I missing any other uh, direwolves there, James? No, I I think you're you're right on that. But there there was I read one fan theory online, and one thing that's really interesting about knowing certain things that are coming on the show is reading fan theories each week and going, "Wow, those are really smart and totally wrong." So so I, I, on one hand, I'm a little bit reluctant to to bring up a fan theory, but I I, I kind of dig this one. 
And it's this idea that all the direwolf names are prophetic. And I, kn- I didn't put much stock into it until this time because it was summer was killed by the demons of winter. So winter is coming. And so summer is taken out. John was brought back to life. So he's like a ghost. And that starts to reach a bit. You know, it's like Sansa had Lady who was killed by the Lannisters. And the theory goes, oh, the Lannisters likewise, you know, metaphorically killed Sansa's gentle lady-like side. And then Rob and his army blew down south or and then was blown out like a, quote, gray wind. But I'm not sure how all this applies to Shaggy Dog, except that Rickon, you know, when he when they pulled the hood off his off his head, he looked like this like like, like a shaggy dog. And how Arya's direwolf Nymeria comes in play, uh, how that name comes into play is anybody's guess, though there was a warrior queen in Dorne that had the same name. So maybe that has something to do with it or not. Having now said that I am so anti-direwolves, I am very much in favor of this theory. What I do like about that theory is that it suddenly makes all the direwolf deaths part of a grand plan that will be clear in retrospect. Just like, you know, Hodor and his name uh, and why he says that and his, his whole purpose, you know, suddenly becomes, you know, all this has this retrospective clarity. And that would be cool if, if that were the case. But, you know, again, it's it's not as of yet clear. Let's move just a little to the south and uh, talk a bit about all the action that's going on at Castle Black. Um, besides the fact that, uh, you know, thanks to the brand storyline, this was a great episode for the greater mythological implications. But, um, you know, I also kind of really enjoy it whenever, like on the show, you get a moment to sort of orient yourself with regards to, you know, what's happening all over the map of Westeros. Um, And, uh, you know, there was so much action. uh, You know, Littlefinger showed up and talked to Sansa and was sort of like, you know, attempting to pledge himself to her. You also had, uh, out of that conversation, you had a lot of talk about what's going on down in, down in the Riverlands with some of their remaining uh, relatives. So lots of interesting kind of greater movements happening on the sort of, you know, strategic tactical map of Westeros this week. Um, what did you think about the Littlefinger Sansa conversation? Because that's obviously a talk that, you know, is loaded with both a lot of history. And it seemed to me like it was loaded with a lot of almost kind of like extra textual conversation. Like it really felt like that was a moment where the show was directly addressing a lot of the things that fans were talking about last season. Also, the great question of that sort of uh, conversation was something that I, I know a lot of people have been wondering, what the heck was Littlefinger's plan last season? <laughs> lots of lots of different things happening in that one conversation. You know, my big takeaway from that conversation was more emotional than it was anything else because I thought it was really well done in that she put him on the spot and really just grilled him and made him more unsettled and uncertain and uncomfortable than we have ever seen him before. And, you know, when she's asking questions like, do you want to hear about my wedding night? And what do you think happened? And she's like staring right at him and sort of almost like, like looking like right into the camera. It's making us feel uncomfortable too. And I thought that that was a really good way of addressing the most controversial scene in the show's history in a way that explored it in a non-exploitative way, but helped emotionally process that, uh, what we saw last season a little more because, you know, that, that, that scene was, was criticized in some ways because of its uh, brevity. And then suddenly she, she's like on the run. And I think that this was a really smart scene to do and a very emotionally powerful scene to do to talk 
about the emotional impact of what had only been a visually told brief thing in the past that uh, people had a lot of strong feelings about. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, again, just we're saying this each week now, full credit to Sophie Turner for what, what I think may really have been, like, one of the best scenes that, that she's ever had in the show. Um, you know, it really just brings to the fore just how, how, how much more powerful and how much more dominant Sansa is this season. I found it really interesting um, because, you know, uh, the actor who plays Littlefinger, who uh, is actually named uh, Aiden Gillen, but I will only refer to him as as Carcetti for the rest of, of, of my life. I thought his reactions in that scene were really interesting because with Littlefinger, the question is always, like, how much does he know? What is his plan? Like, you know, is by attempting to work against his plans, are you somehow working towards his plans? And what I found really interesting was watching that scene for the first time ever, I was honestly kind of like, I- I'm not sure what Littlefinger's play is here. I mean, he it seems like, you know, he has essentially taken all the power he has right now as the sort of, you know, regent Dick Cheney power behind the throne of the Eerie and brought that to the north. And, you know, you have to imagine that, like, he probably thought that she was going to welcome that. And, and, you know, you wonder, you know, was he surprised that she didn't? One thing that that I had in my head, which is, you know, it, it all goes back to my general theory with him is that he's always thinking 10 steps ahead, which may or may not be the case anymore. I was sort of wondering if, did he walk out of there kind of saying, like, this is great. Like, now I can kind of tell her this, this little factoid about how her uncle has kind of retaken the Riverlands. Now, like, the, the great powers of the North will join up with the River Run to attack Ramsay Bolton, and I and my army from the Erie, we don't need to do anything. I, I don't know, I, I was sort of wondering if that was an angle. What what was your read on Littlefinger's intentions um, in that scene? You know, I think in some ways my sense is, is that whatever his plan was last season, the big blow-up with um, Sansa and Ramsay and, and Ramsay's actions has probably thrown a wrench into that. And maybe he's just kind of scrambling to sur- to stay in the game and remain relevant at this point. And maybe he doesn't have like a 10 steps ahead plan at the moment. Maybe he's just, you know, more like operating like two steps ahead. And maybe he's just sort of trying to keep up with th- the situation and make himself useful to this new emerging power uh, couple in the north of uh, Sansa and John. It's definitely unclear, but, you know, he, he can just sort of stand there and and look crafty. And we sort of believe that, that he has like, a, you know, a, a, a detailed master plan that he may or may not have. Yeah. I mean, like, like do you think you know, it's so funny because, um, you know, one of the great sort of theme stories of Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire is this idea that, like, you know, when the show begins, you have these great old heroes like Ned Stark. That sort of whole paradigm of heroism cannot exist in, you know, when you have people like Littlefinger and the Spider and Cersei and all these sort of, like, almost more kind of, like, politically-minded, devious people. What you're just saying, it makes me wonder if, you know, over the course of the show, we're at the point now where Littlefinger himself he's kind of out of date. All of his sort of, you know, machinations and the machinations of people like him has kind of led to this point where, you know, he thinks that he's working with people who are like him, you know, someone like Roos Bolton, who is very devious and, 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 and very politically minded. But the total destabilization that they have produced on Westeros has now created people like Ramsey Bolton or like, you know, Euron Greyjoy, you know, people who, who you can't really assume are as devious and clever as you are. Like, and, and maybe that 
that's kind of why he seems so out of sorts now. He himself, Littlefinger has become like the Ned Stark, basically, where he he, he is now sort of out of date. Um, that's that's a theory that I'm going to be sort of like, you know, workshopping for a while. We'll see if that uh, comes to pass. Um, there's so much else happening up around the wall now. Like th- th- that almost kind of like like very briefly became like, you know, a sort of mini King's Landing unto itself. There's this great sort of like subplot up there about Brienne and uh, Tormund, which I find sort of sort of interesting. <laughs> well, what's terrific about it is that, first of all, from the moment she rode in the gate and Tormund looked at her, Twitter blew up. It was it was instant. I mean, people got it instantly. And, you know, you say the word subplot. And I've been saying like storyline and subplot and when writing about it. But but it's really not a subplot. It's really not a storyline. It's all just physical acting within scenes where other stuff is going on. It's like, you know, there's been no conversation about it. It's I, I've, I've never seen such a thing blow up over just a few moments of of glances and interactions you know that are are completely nonverbal and i think that's what's been been so fun about it is that without any any actual dialogue between them they've managed to create such a sensation out of something that's almost like basically going on in the background of all this other action that might be kind of a wonkish way of uh, of looking at like Brienne and Tormund shipping, you know, but it's interesting how minimalist that is, yet how big it's become, at least online. Interestingly enough, too, there was actually a scene that was cut that more directly addressed the Brienne Tormund uh, storyline. Uh, Gwendolyn Christie, in, in an interview uh, that we're posting today on EW, you know, she talked about how there's a scene with her and Sansa where, in her words, Sansa goes mean girls on her and sort of starts to mercilessly tease her <laughs> about Tormund's interest. And uh, Brienne is like totally flustered and like not knowing how to handle that. Uh, which sounds fantastic, and you know, we can only hope that on the uh, season six DVD that that's one of the outtakes. It's time once again for the Game of Thrones trivia contest. As you all know, each week here we ask you a trivia question centered on Game of Thrones. Uh, we have some great prizes uh, to offer, and uh, the way to play is to send your answer into our email, which is gotpodcast at ew.com. Last week we asked you about uh, what were the siblings from the great house of Westeros who were all alive uh, when the show began and who are all dead now. That was, of course, the Baratheons, got your Robert Baratheon, your Stannis Baratheon, Renly Baratheon, my favorite. Not really, I, I kind of preferred Stannis. Um, this week, we are asking you another trivia question. Great prizes are available. Tyrion Lannister is the only major character on Game of Thrones who we have seen go to the far corners of the known world from Castle Black to Marine, two, two fantastic places to visit. Arya Stark and the Spider have also crossed the Narrow Sea, sailing from Westeros to Essos, but lesser characters have traveled far, too. Name the character, still living, a member of one of the great houses of Westeros, who we have seen on both continents in the course of the show. Member of the great houses of Westeros, he's still alive, he's been on both continents, Westeros and Essos. Uh, send in your answer to gotpodcast at ew.com. Uh, we will randomly pick uh, from all the correct answers and award that person the prize. And uh, just so you know, only one person can win. Oh. 
I'm, I'm almost in tears right now. We finally got to the King Smoot, and it was awesome, says me, and hopefully other people. Um, Yara Greyjoy stood up, gave a fantastic speech about how she was going to shake things up. She was going to, like, take the Iron Islands and make them into the Platinum Islands. She had big plans. She was going to be the first queen ever. The, the way things work... At, at at a king's moot, it seems to kind of follow like Frank Capra rules of whoever was the most recent speaker. Everyone just immediately starts applauding, and unfortunately, Yara Greyjoy was not the last speaker because then somebody else appeared, um, and that was our first non-shadowy, non-thundery sighting of Euron Greyjoy. Um, he made uh, a, a pretty interesting first impression, uh, very different from the books in, in some ways. Um, what did you, as someone who is not the world's biggest fan of the Greyjoys, because I am, uh, what did you think about the, the Kingsmoot scene? I'm not anti-Greyjoy, it's just, but you are the world's biggest fan, so therefore I am inherently not the world's biggest fan. <laughs> uh, first of all, there needs to be a beer named Kingsmoot as soon as possible, because I, I, would, I would order Kingsmoot ale, like, all day long. Um, so <laughs> Second, I, you know, I thought Euron came in and just really, uh, you know, you say Yara gave this great speech. I, Euron's speech, I could see why he won. I mean, he was forceful. He's like, I'm going to do all these ships and this guy, you know, you know, doesn't have genitals and I have genitals and we're going to. Uh, make the Iron Islands great again, and you know he 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 like he like owned it. I was like, yeah, you're on. You know, I he he knew how to play play to the crowd. Totally. Well, well, because on a purely political level, Yara was saying the thing that like you know politicians should always say but never do because if they do, then they're punished for it. She was saying, guys, listen. We've never been that great. Like, we've never conquered anything. They don't respect us. But, but, if you give me some time, I can, I can fix this. I can, you know, we will build some ships. You know, we'll, we'll start doing more things. Wasn't entirely clear to me, like, what her end game was, but she definitely wanted to sort of, like, make some big moves. But, you know, sort of, sort of rooted in this awareness that we over here on Pike haven't really been that important for a while. Euron came in and was just like, guys, like, we've always been great. And, and under me, we're going to be even better. That was actually my one criticism of this episode is I actually thought I actually, and this is weird that I'm saying this, not you, but I actually wanted longer Kingsmoot. I mean, the entire sequence went by what felt like really quickly and, you know, in terms of both both the debate and then the Drowned God ceremony and then stealing the ships. It happened all really rapidly and there's a lot of tension to be mined there with this idea that as soon as he's elected and as soon as he comes out of that water, he's going to try to kill them and they need to escape. And so it, it played a little sped up for me, especially the the the, the escape part. I, I, I actually actually wanted more of of what we were getting than than we got. Totally. If we're all done on Pike, we need to talk about what's going on with the world's best little theater company over in Bravos. <laughs> right? Yeah, this week we got a play within a play uh, and with some very intriguing meta commentary uh, as Arya got her latest uh, assassination assignment that she's been warned not to screw up. And she found that they're producing a play of basically Game of Thrones, where apparently what's been happening these last few years uh, is is pretty much as interesting to the people there in, in Essos as it is to us here. It was sort of fascinating to watch because 
the broad strokes of the story are all correct, but the motives for each of the characters is like wildly wrong. I mean, you have this sort of sympathetic Joffrey, you have this caring Cersei, you you have uh, Ned Stark as as this buffoon, uh, which you can you know, argue a little bit, but uh, but but also one who's like this careerist who who's who's like a ladder climber. And then you have like the murderous, uh, devious Tyrion. I found that just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you kind of pointed this out in, in your recap. I, I love the kind of aspect. And, you know, this happens whenever any show goes meta. But like, you know, the the notion that this was sort of some commentary on how we who watch Game of Thrones, like, you know, sometimes we may sort of not understand what the motivations are or we might like totally misread things. Um, I, I found that very entertaining. But mainly I, I did just kind of like... And, you know, boy, like Maisie Williams totally selling this with just, you know, no dialogue, just like just like the look on her face. There is the moment of realizing like, oh, my God, you know, all this stuff's been happening on the show and and, and we're privy to it. You know, we know that, you know, Ned Stark, such a tragic figure. How horrifying must it be for her to realize like, oh, like everybody in the world thinks that, you know, my my father was this dumb traitorous figure and Joffrey is painted in just such glowing terms in that play. I mean, it, that, that may have been one of the most tragic moments of the show, e- even though it was, you know, very kind of like funny tragic in a way. But boy, that really kind of like hits you and, and it clearly hit Arya as well. I'm surprised that she didn't want to kill all of them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, somebody was putting out uh, um, online too. One of the perf- one of the performers, I think, was Richard E. Grant, uh, the sort of yes. famous uh, British a- a- actor. So I- I'm excited to see more of him. I'm very tickled by the fact, though, that if Arya goes through with her mission, she will be killing "quote unquote" Cersei. Which I, I wonder if that's kind of like part of the intention of uh, what the what the faceless men are are, are doing that uh, she'll be killing the performer who is playing Cersei who seems like a delightful person we might add <laughs> uh, yeah and of course that's been one of my um, as a fan one of the scenes that I've always wanted to see I've always wanted to see Arya and Cersei in a room together and uh, as I think I've said before on this podcast so I hope that comes true but I guess this is the closest thing that we're going to get to that for a while and, and we're getting the sense that 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 there's this reluctance there to uh, kill her, which might um, cause problems for her. It's time for my favorite segment: Dark Wings, Dark Words. <laughs> Coming in from listener Arlen Harrow, great name by the way. Uh, wouldn't Danny kill Euron once he came on too strong, and wouldn't she make Yara the head of her navy? Um, again, like you know, this all kind of comes back to what kind of story we think like Danny's story is. You know, is it? Is she going to be someone who leads in a very inspirational way? Or is her story the story of, like, someone becoming a leader and sort of like, you know, kind of like, you know, like Robert Redford in The Candidate, like, gradually needing to become more and more of a politician as, as she goes along? I, I, I'm very tickled now by, by the idea, something that you had teased, James, that maybe there's some sort of a race to Marine between the two Greyjoys. And, you know, if Yara gets there first, it seems as if she would have much more in common with Danny uh, than a Euron does, but um, I'm I, I'm intrigued to see how that plays out. Just to kind of clarify, in the books, 
there is the sort of thread about the Greyjoys wanting to unite with uh, the Targaryens. This is not a spoiler because the show is basically now tied with that plot line. Um, but in the books, what, what happens is it's more kind of like the Greyjoys kind of start raiding and then there's like another through line about them wanting to unite with, with Danny. So th- this it seems like as far as the show is concerned, them and Danny is a main plot point now. So I, I'm intrigued to see how that plays out. Would you want to see Yara and uh, Danny teamed up together, James? Uh, I could see them getting along pretty darn well. I'd be curious to see a uh, conversation between Theon and Danny. I mean, how 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 would that go? <laughs> it's also a speculative mashup because ultimately, you know, Euron seems pretty. Uh, confident that he can, you know, get those ships built and get after them. Uh, and so, you know, we could be in for a big naval battle and then, you know, just one rowboat, you know, goes up uh, on the shore of Marine and like the, the victor stumbles out, you know, you know, we never know what we're going to get here. There is something, I can't talk about this because it could be a spoiler, there is something in the books that Euron sort of mentions, which which may or may not affect what happens with regards to the Targaryens and the dragons and everything. I'm intrigued to see if the show even gets into that because it's it's sort of a strange part of the books, but we'll, we'll approach that more in the future, I'm sure. Um, follow-up question from uh, Thana de Leon. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing everything. Um, my question is regarding the White Walkers. If John Sansa, her crew, and the wildlings go to Winterfell, that leaves the wall somewhat unprotected. Shouldn't they be afraid of a White Walker attack? Can the White Walkers attack any time, or only when winter comes? And just when is winter coming? So many questions that I don't necessarily have, have the answer to there, James. Yeah, you know, in terms of, of the winter coming thing, I it's not something that bothers me, just because... The idea of everyone being in snowfall is is just kind of visually not what I hope to have in, in a show. So uh, that they're kind of punting on that a little bit, I am completely fine with. Two things you lo- you hate, James, that I love is people in ships and people in snow. My this is why <laughs> my ideal version of Game of Thrones is just all Shackleton all the time. It's just all people sailing <laughs> ships, sailing ships through ice. Um, part of what what makes this, what makes this question interesting is it, it brings up like a, a big sort of not that obvious change from the books to the TV show. The books are, are sort of told real time is the wrong word, but like all the action seems to be happening sort of, there's not a lot of like breaks in the action by book five, you know, only like a couple of years have passed. And by book five, you're actually kind of seeing winter gradually arrive in a way that like, I think would be very difficult to do on a TV show. The show has very clearly established that years have passed and the show kind of needs to establish that because, you know, we'll just look at Bran and look at Arya and, you know, you can tell that, you know, more than just a few months time has passed. And so, Part of the issue there is that, like, you do have this weird sensation watching the show that, okay, the White Walkers are always coming and and they're always almost here. But also, you know, they've taken their sweet time sort of gradually arriving. My own sense is that, like, the White Walkers will only really attack when it is straight up winter, when, like, straight up, you know... King's Landing is covered in snow and one gets the sense that we're not going to necessarily get there this season. You know, it'll it'll happen uh, at some point. So, I think winter is coming in uh, 2018. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I think that about uh, wraps it up for this week, James. Uh, you can follow us uh, at James Hibbard, at Darren Franich. Keep in mind, you can email us at gotpodcast at ew.com. And we'll, we'll be back next week to talk more about Game of Thrones. 